As I mentioned, today is Valentine's Day, and so um, it's a day that uh, many express their love for one another, and uh, although it's usually more uh, the expression of a romantic love, uh, I do believe that it is important on this day that's set aside to, to uh, exemplify love and to, and to talk about love and making love the focus. I think it's important that we also address uh, this thing called love. And um, we're going to be talking about it with respect to love for one another, meaning in the fabric of the church. And we're going to also talk about love within the fabric of the home, uh, between spouses and, other, and family members, etc. And so, uh, if you have your Bible, our text today is going to be found from the book of 1 Timothy. So if you turn in the Old Testament toward the back, you'll find 1 Timothy. We're going to look at chapter 1, starting in verse 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia... Stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love. Let me say that again. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. That's our text. Now, agree with me as I lift up my heart in prayer, asking for the guidance of the Holy Spirit as we delve into this text and apply it to all of our lives. Father, I pray right now for the, the power of the Holy Spirit to, to fall upon me and to help me to communicate clearly the, the, these thoughts that you put in my heart for all of us here today. God, I pray that, uh, as always, please give us an ear to hear. We just don't want to hear physically. We want to hear with our spirit, oh God. We want to understand what your word means to us spiritually, how we can apply it to our lives, how we need to apply it to our lives, so that in all things, we can live a life that will not only honor the name that Jesus, of Jesus Christ, but bring him glory and praise as a result. We thank you for this even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, let's look at our text. Uh, notice the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, who's a young pastor. He pastors in Ephesus. Paul left him to pastor there. And Ephesus had some issues going on in the church. There were people that were teaching false doctrines, or false, meaning false beliefs, saying this is what the Bible teaches, or this is what God wants us, how God wants us to live. Uh, and there were also uh, people that were teaching about 
myths and genealogies, it probably was part of that false teaching where they were dealing with myth, myth, meaning uh, there was nothing historically accurate, but there was something what people believed. Uh, These were things that people uh, anticipated and thought should be part of the Christian journey and the Christian doctrines, the teachings that were to structure our lives around. There was the focus on genealogies and say, okay, where in the genealogy of someone's history, what about their, their tree, as you will, the genealogical tree, where do they come from, or, or should they be a part of all of this, it, it, is one more important than the other, because this one was from the, the, the tree of Joshua, and this one was from the tribe of Levi, uh, and they try to incorporate all of that into the church as important and made it part of doctrine. And notice that the result was it created controversies. There were all kinds of issues going on in the church. And whenever you have controversies that are raging on in the church, surely you have division, where, where people have multiple visions of what should be taking place. And you notice this also, that as a result of these controversies, uh, these all these focus on teaching, it kept God's work from advancing. Now remember, God's work is uh, the, the, the gospel, getting the gospel out, telling people about the good news that Jesus Christ died for their sins so that they could have their sins forgiven and enjoy a relationship with God that is not hindered or cut off because of our sin. But because the church was so engaged in these controversies, it actually put the gospel, the work of the Lord, on the back burner. And so they, weren't, they were more focused about what was going on inside at the cost of those that were losing their soul on the outside. And so now what we've got now is Paul directs Timothy to correct these issues, which would come from the heart of love. He said, the result of, of I wanting you to correct these things is uh, love. But notice, it, love that he's talking about, which by the way, we all know, and we're gonna f- uh, see again in God's word, that love is the critical component of the church, and we'll see why in a moment. But this love itself that Paul was talking about had three elements to it. He said, uh, the goal of this is love that comes from, and these are the three elements of this love, a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So now, as always, we, we read God's word. We want to understand it in context as to what was going on at that time. And now we want to make the connection of how it works in our life here today. And so what I'd like to do is I'd like to unpack our text and frame it, if you will, as a necessity, not only for the church, God's people, when we're gathered here which we will be again, remember, March the 7th, but also for our marriage and for our family. Meaning, I want to unpack this and frame it and structure so that we all understand these principles that we're going to talk about, love, apply not just in the church, but also at home with our family members. So here's the first frame that I'd like to uh, look at, and that is misdirected focus 
Misdirected focus is the first frame. And by that I mean this, concentrating on the wrong or unimportant factors or issues. All right? So you notice in the church, they were focused in Ephesus there on uh, myths and genealogies. Things that have nothing to do with spiritual growth. But somebody brought it in thinking, well, I'm going to make this a part of this thing. But it had no bearing on, on, on the spiritual growth. And it has zero to do with the preaching of the gospel, which is the great mission of the church, which was where the church should be focused on. And so this misdirected focus, uh, you could also, uh, if you want to use the phrase, majoring in the minors. Uh, it talks in, in the church, meaning they were focused on the wrong thing. They were misdirected in their focus and what they were concentrating on. And now, thus they lost out on the mission. And the work of God stopped advancing. For you and I today, in the structure of the church, there can be issues that are created within the church that can bring up, make controversies, if you will, divisions, uh, rather than unity. And you'd be surprised at what we're talking about and how we can get this misdirected focus. There are times where uh, churches can get so caught up on what the color of the church ought to be. Uh, what paint should we put on the walls? What, what color should it be? And, and what color should the rugs be? And, and, and how should we structure the platform and so forth? Uh, and, and so people make issues of all of these things and they, they, they start focusing on like, this is the main thing. I cannot worship God unless the walls are painted blue. So we got to paint the walls blue. And I know I'm exaggerating, but Trust me, in my time in serving the Lord and, and being a presbyter, checking with other churches and talking with other pastors, you'd be amazed at how often in church we make issues out of things that really don't matter in the bigger picture, that take us away from promoting the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, there's been issues about, oh, what food should we serve at fellowship? Or... You know what? There's some traditions that we have always had, and we cannot worship God without those traditions. Listen, there are some traditions that are wonderful, but we all have to remember traditions are not doctrines. Traditions are not doctrines. In other words, what I mean by that is, well, this is the way we've always done it. That's wonderful. But the moment you make it that this is the way we have to do it, now you've made it a doctrine. Now you've, you've gotten off that end. So now you feel like if we don't do that, God can't move. If we don't do that, we're not going to be pleasing God and we're not going to be pleasing the people and people are going to get upset and we're going to get all of these things. And next thing you know, We've got controversies going on in the church, divisions that go on in the church. When these issues become the focus of the church, the work of God, the gospel, reaching the lost, is not advanced. It's put on the back burner. The focus of the church must never be misdirected away from the mission of the church, which is to reach the lost. Nothing else really matters. 
All of these issues are really non-factors. It doesn't matter what color are on the walls. It doesn't matter uh, what, what food we serve at fellowship. None of those things really matter in, in the big picture. We have to stay focused on what God has called us to do at the church. Now, let me move that now to the misdirected focus at home between spouses, between family members, it could be siblings, or it could be from parent to, to child, from child to parent, or other uh, uncles and aunts. The New York Times has written an article recently that during the pandemic, domestic abuse has risen dramatically in the world. Think about that for a moment. Domestic dispute has risen dramatically in the world. I think we all can attest to the fact that we can get on each other's nerves being at home for so long, right? Uh, we were shut down. Everybody's been shut down and for, for a season there. Uh, for months, we were, uh, my wife kept looking at me like, don't you have to go to the office? Don't you have to get out and do something? Yeah, everybody thinks she's an angel, but you don't know my wife. Did I just lose it? I just lost my Valentine. <laughs> easy come, easy go. That's what I say. <laughs> Seriously, though, right? We get cooped up and we get tired of one another. Our patience wears out. There's added stress for some who have lost their job as the finances are, are getting out of control and they don't know how they're going to make ends meet. All of these things are, are added into, into this mixture. And the next thing you know, we've got tempers that are getting out of control at the house. And, and, and this domestic abuse is on the increase. Now you may say, well, you know, I've never uh, touched my spouse or my kids. I've never done anything that way. You know what? Uh, abuse can come in many forms. Sometimes the abuse that's the worst is the one that comes out of our tongue, our mouth. So, it's important that we look at this thing from this perspective. Now, I've been married 42 years to a great woman. I don't want to lend you some insight that I've seen in my own marriage and possibly you'll see it in yours. I'm going to talk about marriage now for a moment. I've discovered that most of our disagreements, I won't say arguments because my wife and I, we don't argue. We just disagree. Most of our disagreements really are on issues that in the big picture aren't so important. In other words, they're misdirected focus. Have you ever noticed how many arguments we have in the home that centers around really silly issues? Where, I mean, you, if you take a step back, you realize that you've made a mountain out of a molehill. Uh, I know for me, one of the things that has helped me throughout the years to be a better husband, I've not mastered it completely, but it has helped me is when I am not happy with my wife, one of the things I like to do now is to step back and say, well, Carlos, what are you angry about? 
What is the real issue here? And then it leads me to my second question. Are you ready to make a big deal about that? Because is it really a big deal? And I can tell you that the majority of the time when I go through that process, I realize, man, that wasn't such a big deal after all. And you know what? I've got my faults the way she has her faults. So I am not going to make a big deal about that. I'm going to let that thing go. And it has saved me from having these disagreements that escalate and get out of control because I took the time by the help of the Holy Spirit to realize I'm majoring in a minor. This is really not a big deal. I think a lot of people have realized during this pandemic, especially those that unfortunately have had a loved one that's gotten sick, that when they've gotten sick, all of a sudden you realize, you know what? Nothing really matters. All that matters now is their health, right? Uh, an accident happens. You got, you got into a car accident. Okay, you know what? I don't care that we had an argument. All I want to know is, are you okay? And all of a sudden, life takes on a different perspective and you realize that thing that had me so upset is really not a big deal after all. Because in the end, God put us together God has promised if we look to him that he will help us navigate through all the issues that we have in life. And listen, every married couple has issues. There's no such thing as a perfect marriage. Every one of us has issues. And, and so it's how we work through and navigate through those issues that determines whether they're going to have a strong marriage or not. And one of the ways that it can help us is to make sure that we don't have that misdirected focus, that we don't allow ourselves to get caught up in things that really in the end don't matter much. Because the real focus on our marriage, on our family, is this. Am I growing spiritually? Listen to me now. You cannot be a great husband if you're not a great Christian. And I, I mean that in the sense that because we all have this sinful nature that is selfish, if, if you're not surrendering your life to God and growing in your relationship with God, ultimately that sinful nature is going to find an expression in your relationship, whether it's to your spouse or whether it's to your children, whatever, or a family member. So it's critical for us to stay focused and say, my number one goal my responsibility is to make sure that I'm growing, growing closer to God so that as I grow closer to God, I can get the help that I need from God to be a better spouse, to be a better parent, a better son or a better daughter, you see. Now, if we are doing that, we will grow in our love for our spouse. We will grow in our love for our children or our family members, whoever they might be. Now, the second frame that I want to put this in is Paul, what Paul said, the goal is love. In fact, that's what I've titled this message. The goal is love. Now, here's why this is so critical for us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 16 says, God is love. Whoever lives 
in God, excuse me, whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. So the goal is love. Why? Because God is love. And if we, as the people of God, we're supposed to be demonstrating the very character of God, the very essence of God. Well, the Bible says it clear that the very purest essence of who God is, is that God is love. And when we live in love, we live in God, which means we're having that intimate relationship with God and, and God with us. So to be like God, to have this Christ-like character we must live in love. The goal is love. Of course, we know in the church, that's the goal. Let's look at uh, 1 John, excuse me, not 1 John, uh, Gospel of John, chapter 13. Jesus said this to his disciples, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know you're my disciples if you love one another. So in the fabric of the church, the command of the Lord is to love one another. And here's the standard. You have to love your brother, your sister, the way I love you. And I think you'll agree with me. God loves us with an everlasting love. God loves us with a love that's full of grace and mercy and patience and gentleness and kindness. And that is what we're supposed to be expressing toward one another in church. Now, I know we haven't been able to do a lot of that because we're not gathering. But listen, we're not, love isn't limited to the four walls of this building. There are other brothers and sisters and, and part of our family that are hurting, that need uh, us to reach out to them and help them in whatever way we can. And if you are interested in loving your brother, your sister, the Holy Spirit will show you exactly what you can do for all of that, for them in, that, in their situation. And notice Jesus said, this is how the world will know you're my disciples. The world won't know that you're my disciple because you sing well or because you hand out tracts or because you are, are good at, at sounding religious and you pray well. Yeah, that's how they'll know. no. Jesus said, here is the measurement by how the world, those who don't know Christ, how they can determine, how they can tell that you are truly my disciple because you love one another. That's in the church. Now, the goal is love in the home. Now, the love in the home, I want to break it down and add to this interior of this framing, three things. Number one, it's a love that comes from a pure heart. The love that comes from a pure heart. Now, a pure heart means that your thoughts, your emotions have been cleansed from impurities. So Paul said, I want you to love from a pure heart. So this, I want to keep it in the context of our relationships now at home. Uh, we need to love one another at home from a pure heart. We need to love our family uh, from a pure heart, meaning we have to make sure our thoughts and our emotions have been cleansed from impurities. 
Let me give you an example of an impurity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, it says this. It, meaning love, does not record, has no records of wrong. Excuse me. It has no record of wrongs. What does that mean? It means love doesn't keep an account of the wrong that's done to it. We do not love from a pure heart if we use past wrongs um, to put someone down, uh, especially our spouse usually. Uh, we put our spouse down when we are in the heat of a disagreement and all of a sudden you bring up the past of a spouse's failure and you bring that back into the future. The Bible said love keeps no records of wrong. You don't love from a pure heart if you are keeping a log of all the wrongs that have been done that you can use whenever you want as ammunition to hurt your spouse or that family member. You have not forgiven them that past wrong if you bring it up, especially in a time of disagreement. That means your love for that person is contaminated. And we are commanded to love from a pure heart to make sure that what we think and what we feel is not tainted, that we have cleansed ourselves from that. And the Holy Spirit will help you and I accomplish that, that we can make sure that what we are thinking and what we are feeling has been purified by the Spirit of the Lord who is holy. Amen? Okay. The goal of love from a pure heart, that's number one. And number two, from a good conscience. From a good conscience. Now, it's important we all are on the same page, so let me make sure we understand that the conscience is your inner voice that judges our morality. The inner voice that judges our morality. We are all created with a conscience by God. That's why even if you don't know what is right or wrong from a law perspective, from a legal perspective, you do have a conscience that will speak to you and tell you when you have done wrong. Conscience always points to what you have done wrong so that you can get it right. And for us as Christians, the Holy Spirit works through the conscience to convict us, uh, to tell us we have been wrong, whether it's our thoughts, whether it's our emotions, whether it's some behavior. Uh, that's, it's important that we have a good conscience. Loving from a good conscience means I'm being responsive to the voice of my conscience. I'm heeding its voice to do what it's telling me to do. For instance, if, the, if my conscience is telling me, you said something to Yvonne that you shouldn't have said, or you said it with an attitude, your attitude was wrong. I could have an argument with myself and say, no, it wasn't, it doesn't really matter. Or I can listen to the voice of conscience and then realize I got to get this right because I didn't handle it right. My attitude was wrong. So I have to seek forgiveness for that. We have to have a love that comes from a good conscience. The Bible says for us in uh, Titus, let me turn there quickly. 
in Titus chapter 1. Look at verse 15 and 16 with me. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and their consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God, but by their actions, they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for anything good. Strong language, isn't it? But notice, when we violate our conscience on a continued basis, when we continually reject what our conscience is telling us to get that right, to apologize, to, to make reconciliation, when we reject our conscience, it becomes corrupt or defiled. And when we do that, we become unfit to serve God. In Timothy, in the same chapter of our text, in chapter 1, in verse 18 and 19, Paul said this, Timothy, my son, I am giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you, so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to faith. May God help you and I today to hold on to that good conscience, to heed his voice, to respond to it so that it doesn't become defiled. Because when the conscience becomes defiled, the sinful nature that we all have begins to prevail. And next thing you know, we're saying things we shouldn't say. We're doing things we shouldn't do. And it continues to escalate and get worse. Here's my third point that I'm framing. The goal is love from, number one, a pure heart. Number two, a good conscience. And here's number three, a sincere faith. A sincere faith. It means a faith without hypocrisy. A genuine faith. In James chapter 2, verse 17, he writes, In the same way, faith by itself, if not accompanied by action, is dead. What does it mean to love from a sincere faith? It means this. I thought to just simplify for all of us here today. Our faith, what we profess, must be matched by our actions, what we do. In other words, I can say to my wife, I love you, I love you, I love you. But if my actions do not match up to my words, then I'm not sincere. I'm hypocritical. We need to recognize it's so crucial 
In this day and age where we have so much going uh, against the home to try to destroy the home uh, and the fabric of the family, we need to recognize, listen, we're all imperfect and we're all a work in progress. So we need to recognize that the goal is love. Why? Because God is love and we're supposed to demonstrate the very character of God in, in our relationships. And so we want to love from a pure heart. We want to make sure that our thoughts and our emotions have been purified of anything that, that is unclean, that would defile us. We want to make sure that we have a good conscience, that we're heeding that vo inner voice that, that tells us when we have done wrong, when we have said wrong, so that we can get that thing right. And we have to make sure that we are loved with a sincere faith, that we are not only are professing that love, but we're matching that by what we do for one another. Now, how does that operate? I thought I'd end with this text. Worship team, if you would come back up. We know this text quite well. In fact, it's very familiar. At marriages, it's often recited. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning of verse 4. Listen, we're, talking, we're going to talk about action now. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always persevere. Love never fails. The goal is love. We need to make sure that we are not distracted by following uh, things that we shouldn't be following, by focusing on things that we shouldn't be focusing. We have to make sure we're not, we don't have that misdirected focus where we start majoring in the minors and, and, and our, our, our focus becomes centered on things that really don't matter in the bigger picture. And that we have to have this love that comes from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. If we will have this kind of love, my God, how strong our marriages will be how strong our families would be. And the church would be strong because in the end, the church could only be as strong as the home and the families that attended. This Valentine's Day where the focus is on love, I pray that the Spirit of the Lord will speak to your heart and that you will be open to receive it and ask yourself, God, Am I loving my spouse? 
Am I loving my family members with this kind of love? That's the goal. A pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith.